Welcome to the Strong Source Commodity Podcast. We are your hosts, Martijn Bron and Alexander Sterk. Hello, listeners, and welcome to already the fourth episode of the Strong Source Commodity Podcast. And we are very happy to welcome Daan Vriens, CEO of Cevetra. I know Daan for more than, than 20 years because we started together. Um, in Cargill as commodity traders on the, as trainees. I started in Amsterdam and Dan started in Rotterdam. And the first time we, we met was in either of those towns, but it was to celebrate a first trade from another <coughs> trainee, most likely. And we had a fantastic tradition that as a trainee, when you did your first trade, you needed to invite the whole trading floor uh, to celebrate the trade. And the tradition was also that the whole Amsterdam team would visit Rotterdam and vice versa. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and Dan made a fantastic career in, in, in Cargill and, uh, and in Cevetra and is now uh, yeah, the CEO of a large trading franchise. And therefore, we're very happy to, uh, to welcome him here today. Yeah, welcome, uh, Dan. I really look forward to it. Uh, we, uh, of course, have... Uh, have all these questions and all the listeners are curious about um, where you came from, what have you done, and great anecdotes, stories, anything you have, maybe uh, still from back in the days. Um, so welcome. Yeah, thanks for being here and appreciate the invitation. I, uh, looking forward to the podcast of today. Yeah, why don't you start with uh, a brief introduction of yourself and we t- we'll take it from there. Pleasure. Yeah, I always say I'm a, I'm a Brabantse Rotterdammer. <laughs> so for the ones who are not from Holland, uh, I'm born and raised in the, in the south of Holland. And uh, I studied in Rotterdam, worked in Rotterdam. And after eight years abroad, I moved back to Rotterdam. So half Brabant, half Rotterdam. Uh, why do I say that? Because I think the two different cultures. Brabant is a bit more softer, burgundic. Rotterdam are the workers and quite direct and also my, my character is a, is a mixture of that. Mm. So after studying, I started to work for Cargill, as Martijn referred to, um, in Rotterdam, which was uh, not the place I was uh, thinking of when you think about a nice multinational. <laughs> this was the bottleneck, and then really deep in the bottleneck, uh, where we were refining uh, tropical oils, but also fish oil. So yeah. it was quite a smelly place, yeah. Martijn might remember when you <laughs> yeah. visited us. Uh, but, but fantastic. I mean, palm oil was an upcoming product. And uh, it was growing very fast. And yeah, t- to start there, it was a very, very good place. Mm. After four years, I moved to Singapore, also trading tropical oils. And then came one, one of the crossroads. So do I continue to trade, pure trade, or go broader? So then I've decided to go broader. I went to uh, Isegem, where Cargill had a refinery and a bottling plant, but more general manager-like roles. I did that uh, after moving back to Schiedam, where the Cargill office was, the oils office. I did that uh, four years, so in total worked 16 years for Cargill. And then uh, I turned 40, so I always say jokingly at home, either a new <laughs> wife or a new job, so I've chosen the cheaper one. Uh, so I moved to Savitra, and after nine months I turned CEO, and that's more than 10 years ago. So that's uh, where, where I am Impressive today. Impressive career, uh, Dan. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really impressive. I think that a lot of traders have that to go from either you keep on trading or you go indeed broader, right? And then could be management roles or maybe different commodity. Can you take us through that moment that you had to choose? You know, what are the things, the pros and the cons at, at that time for you? Yeah, 
I think I can better explain it now than at the time. So I think if you look at my profile as a person, um, I'm always in the orientation phase, they call that. So I like new things. And after eight years of trading, I could do another product. Or I could, but I thought, yeah, do I do this my, my whole life? That's For me, that was too narrow. And I knew, ooh, if I'm not going to change now, then uh, it will become more and more difficult. One, uh, uh, it's a nice environment, but also the money is good. You get branded. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're a trading specialist, you're a trading specialist. Um, but that coincided with uh, both my parents were ill when I lived in Singapore. So I wanted to move closer home. Yeah. And then, yeah, my, my first boss, Jos de Loor, uh, he immediately picked picked up on that and created that that role in, in Belgium. Yeah. So it's a bit of a combination in yeah, uh, what, what do I want. Yeah. If you now look back, I think that's, um, I cannot do with and not without trading. Mm-hmm. I always explain. So with trading, or pure only trading, sorry, is, is too narrow. But I also had a couple of years that I did only sales. And then you miss the spark of trading. Mm-hmm. So after a while, I knew, okay, I won the boat. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then when Sofitra came by, which uh, leading a uh, commodity trading uh, company in the city where I lived, it was, was kind perfect. of was kind of a no-brainer. Though. What was uh, if you? We had the discussion, actually, mm-hmm. I think, in the previous podcast as well. You see often that um, the the best traders in the team become also then a manager, right? Mm-hmm. And now you were a trader, then be, you know, become manager of a big company. How do you look at that? You know, is that is that the true? Is it the lucky shots? Is it how how do you look at that? <laughs> I don't think per se the best trader is the best manager, but you need to have a certain level of credibility. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I think there's a minimum requirement of trading skills and trading capability because otherwise the traders don't take you uh, mm-hmm. serious. Yeah. But I don't think you have to be the best trader no. per se. I uh, don't know how <coughs> you see that, Martijn, but I actually don't. Probably the best traders are not always the best managers. No, that, that's true. Yeah. But the, the thing is, if I if I look at myself, right, and, and I've I've stayed more than 25 years on the trading desk, yeah. and on a diehard uh, trading trench, and, and what I enjoyed about it was that that's not a corporate environment. So as a trader... You know, you can speak your mind. The, you have no time. The market doesn't wait for you. And so there is there is little time for sens- sensitivities on a trading desk. Now, yeah. outside of a trading desk in a large corporation, it's a different way of working together and a different way of being effective. Now, and that is one of the things that interests me because, you know, we got along well in Cargill because you are very direct, very candid. But once you move into the higher echelons, and especially once you move out of the trading environment and you became first COO and later CEO of Saveta, it requires a, a different way of getting things done with more sensitivities, b- making alignments, being being more more, more careful. Mm-hmm. How, how did you manage t- to do that? Yeah. Because that maybe is slightly against your, uh, your uh, nature. my nature, yeah. No, I think uh, I call it different. So freedom for me is very important. Mm-hmm. So that was in trading uh, the case, but also in uh, running Savitra. So I had uh, the luxury to work in a company now with a, with a shareholder, Baywa, who leaves us uh, really alone. Mm-hmm. So there's no day-to-day involvement at all. Uh, we have a quarterly supervisory board meeting. 
that's kind of it. Yeah, and every month I call in for the financial numbers. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of freedom. And uh, that's key for me. And that's also how we have positioned Savitra. If you look at Savitra, it's 21 entities who are really decentral. Mm-hmm. So I try to copy the freedom you have as a trader. Um, I try to copy that also within Savitra and the individual entities. Mm-hmm. Just before uh, the podcast, we discussed the uh, dairy team. Mm-hmm. You assumed it was a Rotterdam. Yeah. You know, it's in, in Den Bosch. Mm. Why? We are decentral. And I take that quite far. Mm. So I believe a decentral empowered organization fits a, a trading company best. And then you also have to have to accept the consequences of being decentral. Mm-hmm. So you're not central then, eh? so you might have missed some cost advantages or some synergies on innovation. Or, but you can't have it both. Mm-hmm. You're either decentral or you're central. And what you should not do is end up in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not here to talk about other companies, but mm-hmm. there are, I think, some companies yeah. fall into that trap. Mm-hmm. And they come in it, I call it uh, vacuum mm-hmm. in the middle. Yeah, that's not good. And I, anyway, I believe trading companies should be decentral. People need to be able to decide on on the table, mm-hmm. quick, agile, etc. And what is then the advantage? Because if they, you can also be, you cannot be agile if you're not decentralized, or you cannot make quick decisions if you're decentralized. What's then? Why do you then need to be decentralized to do that? I think a trader needs to have the freedom yeah. to decide without uh, always having the feeling that someone looks over their shoulder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then they become defensive. And defensive uh, and trading don't go together. You need to be offensive. You need to be willing to lose as well, uh, yeah. to, mm. to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, yeah, you need that, that freedom of uh, movement. If you always have to explain why you do something, you you lose that freedom. And that doesn't mean you can do stupid. Uh, you need to be wise, but, mm-hmm. but freedom is very important, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. Yeah. So I don't only copy that to our traders, but to the whole organization. So if they want to work I like freedom, else. so I yeah. also give freedom to yeah. uh, the entities. Yeah, so if they want to work in a different location, etc., that's all fine. It's and we have six offices in, in the Netherlands. Yeah. And yeah, for the, <laughs> the listeners abroad, <laughs> the Netherlands is not that big. <laughs> but yeah, if we acquire a company or a team, I think it's more important that they feel at home where they are yeah. uh, than that, that we have the advantage of one office. So yeah. I take that quite far, that the decentral uh, yeah. thinking, yeah. because yeah, I'm a strong believer. Yeah. Yeah. It fits us. And it fits me, oh. yeah, that helps. <laughs> but as a trader, you think about your trading strategy. So you're part of a, a franchise, and a trading franchise, maybe a processor, <coughs> determines the markets that you that, that you trade. You try to do the, the best that you can in that market, mm-hmm. but you don't really de- determine it. It's different when you become the CEO yep. of the whole franchise. Then you really need to determine... If you if you're not simply a caretaker, and that was not what you were hired for, no, you were hired to to make a strategic direction to make sure that Savetra remains relevant in no. the in the year in the years ahead and keeps its edge. How how did you do that? Yeah, I I actually do that as a trader, mm. and that's something uh, which also also surprised me uh, as well. But as a trader, you have assumptions on the market, and uh, you put that okay. I think the market is going that mm-hmm. direction. And then you start testing your own assumptions. Yeah. That's kind of what you're continuously doing. Yeah. Yeah? One thing you know for sure, your initial assumptions will not be right. <laughs> yeah? But then it starts. Then the game starts. You start testing. You start testing, are my assumptions right? What am I, if you look at the market, what are we doing? Yeah. For me, a strategy is completely the same. You put a dot on the horizon. Mm. 
I think we go in that direction. And then you start adjusting. Trade is more short-term, yeah. strategy a bit longer-term. Yeah. But in theory, it's, it's the same mentality. Yeah. I always say you start with the plan and then with the numbers, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And I don't spend a lot of time on budgets, uh, financial budget. One thing I know for sure, they will be wrong. So yeah. why, why spend so much time on it? So yeah. I'd rather spend time on discussing, are we doing the right things? Mm -hmm. And if we do the right things, the chance that we do well uh, is bigger than if we don't. So spend your time on that. And the numbers are derived from your actions and not the other way around. So I continuously, okay, we, my assumption yeah. was this. Hmm. It's yeah. not happening. Why not? And then you then you adjust your, your strategic approach. Yeah. I saw this week uh, some clips flying by on LinkedIn about Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. And he said, there's said two things I, I want to discuss with you. He said, one of the things, customer obsession. So he said, don't worry about competition, but focus on the customer only. It, it sounds obvious, but a lot of, of people are very busy with looking at what the competition is doing. That's, that's one thing I, I'd like mm -hmm. to know. And one super interesting thing as well, I find that he said that he is usually the latest one in a meeting to say something mm -hmm. because he wants young people to be comfortable yeah. to come up with their plan yeah. <laughs> and not being biased or impressed by the head of trading. And I recall, I, you recall as well, when sometimes Hickman, Paul Hickman, mm -hmm. who's head of trading of um, Golden Agri Resources, when he was in the meeting, when we had a huge global oil meeting in Cargill, when Hickman said something, wow, that was impressive for the young people. Yep. Now, so how do you deal with that when you are in a, in a meeting, a trading meeting, where then the CEO, not always I assume, but sometimes the CEO is in? How do you make sure that there is an <laughs> environment where everyone can speak their mind? Mm. So those two things, so the customer centricity, and the, yeah, uh, let's let's start yeah. with the second one because yeah. that's not my strength. So actually, the the, <laughs> the best way for me of dealing with it is to not be in the meeting. Okay, I'm extremely extrovert and I can try. So one of my old HR leads said, uh, "Down, every time you open your mouth, at least half of the time, put a candy in it instead of say <laughs> something." So that's not my strength. Mm. So um, in meetings, I'm in or I'm out, mm. and I've accepted that. Yeah. So I'm not proud of it. But okay, it, it's what it is. To add on that, actually, the same guy that you just mentioned, Jeff, mm. he also said, always the most senior people should talk last. Because oh, yeah. the most young people, they always yeah. get influenced by the the, the yeah. older one. E if you don't, Even if you don't want to, right? So if you start talking, they will be influenced in what they say. And maybe they're like, oh, maybe I'm scared I'd not say anything. Or their opinion gets changed and they don't say out blunt what they would like to say. Mm -hmm. So I... Yeah, I do know the story, but what I do encourage a lot is uh, stretch talents. Mm -hmm. So uh, this empowered, uh, uh, we uh, we do with entities. I also expect our entities to do that to, to their traders, give them the challenge, give them the stretch, have a culture of failure, and mm -hmm. everyone says yes, 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 culture of failure. But uh, when, when traders make money, I'm more critical than when traders lose money. Mm. You don't have to tell a trader who's losing money that he's losing money. Yeah? Mm -hmm. He or she knows. Mm -hmm. So I'm supportive when they lose money mm. and I'm a, a bit more critical when they make money. And, so, and this, that's the way I like to oh. stretch them, give them freedom. Freedom is a lot of, yeah, I use yeah. it a lot. Mm -hmm. It's about freedom. But in the meeting itself, uh, yeah, 
It's in my development plan now for 12 years. Hmm. Called active listening, I believe. <laughs> Co-active coaching. I also had a, had a course on that. Uh, many, but no, it's not, it's not my steel. I'm sorry. It brought you a lot of other things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe on the customer. I think there was a, a video and it's called Founders Mentality. I don't know if, if you have seen it. Mm. Alexander can uh, refer to that. But when you start a company, the founder has the mentality uh, and often it's around the customer. Mm. It's all around the customer. 100%. Yeah. And then you start growing. Mm-hmm. Then you hire a CEO who can do that better than you because you're the entrepreneur. You hire someone of HR. You hire mm-hmm. And actually, the, this this video says you are kind of derailed from your founder's mentality, which is around the customer. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, that's why I think to serve the customer, a decent empowered organization, as as, as Safitra has, mm-hmm. uh, does fit. Um, I have to I have to explain that we don't have many uh, cross entity or cross region customers. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the compound feed market is still very fragmented. The 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 food ingredient market, you have a lot lot of customers. So. Yes, we have some key account management, but the vast majority of the customer base is regional. Mm-hmm. That helps, correct? In such, yeah. such a setup. So we believe that you, you want to have people who feel ownership of the customer and uh, you should spend 80% of your time with external things. Can yeah. you supply a customer mm-hmm. and not with internal? Mm-hmm. And and that's where it often, to my opinion, goes wrong. Mm-hmm. You kind of dera- derailed mm-hmm. by the internal uh well-meant uh, discussions, eh? don't get me wrong, yeah. because everyone means well, mm-hmm. but you kind of fall into the trap if you grow bigger to uh, yeah to become corporate. Yeah, but I think uh, it's good that you are actually and that your character is and you know what you say is 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 looking external, right? You you extrovert, right? So that's also often always looking outside, and that's the client in this case, right? So I think there where you have somebody that's also very much externally focused and extrovert etc they like clients they like the commercial side often not always but yeah. often i think that really helps with what what you're trying to achieve what you're achieving is that you that you keep the customers so central in everything you do yeah maybe your character yeah yeah i have to think about it if i if it's the character or the no, not sure. Not you sure. can also yeah. be, be be extrovert, but yeah, yeah. I, I I like to meet people. I think yeah. you refer to that. Yeah. That, that that helps. And the only thing is, uh, and that's why I'm reflecting on it, mm-hmm. uh, because I give so much freedom, and we are decentral empowered. Yeah. I, my customer facing time is too little, mm. because the MD of the entity yeah. does it. Or the, yeah. so that that's you see me thinking. Yeah, I would I would yeah. love to see way more customers yeah. than than I see today. <laughs> yeah, okay. But that might be a consequence of of our setup. I think for most for most traders that are listening now, it's music to their ears. Uh, freedom, license to trade, freedom to operate is, is extremely important. But there are also <coughs> critical moments where you need to be extremely decisive. It could be a crisis situation. And for example, like COVID, huh? which <coughs> was an unprecedented, extreme situation. Can you, can you <coughs> explain to us a bit how you dealt with it, because then you are the CEO and it can be lonely. You have a, a management team, yep. but you, and like in society, I can imagine that there are a huge amount of different opinions and, and, and people, maybe different emotions, whatever, right? But could you explain how you felt? And that's also a difference from being a trader at the time versus responsibility yep. for the whole operation yep. and yep. safety of people and... That's, 
I assume, but I'm interested to hear <laughs> from you, that that was really a moment where you felt like, oh, uh, yeah, now it's up to me and yeah. I need to make some important decisions. And now we also talked about the customer, right? No. When supply chains were, were impacted, how, how do you... You don't want to apply force majeure and all these type of things. So bear with yeah, us a bit to, that, yeah, uh, yeah. that situation. Yeah, so if... I mean, we look back now, it's a couple of years uh, ago, but the um, the first thoughts are way more about the safety of the people mm. and uh, the health yeah. than uh, the business. Mm. Somehow the business rather quickly, we realized, ooh, quite some turmoil here. Uh, we don't have assets. I think I have yeah. to explain to Vito Group. Yeah. It's very light in assets. We have mm-hmm. some, some we own some silos or some, some, some modification plans, but... A blue collar uh, is, is rather limited. Mm-hmm. That helped in Corona because it's, I think to keep a, a plant running yeah. was a huge challenge. Yeah. For us, I was impressed how quickly we moved to hybrid working or yeah. to home office. And then, yeah, uh, also here we are decentral. So one entity mm. said 100% from home. Mm-hmm. Another entity said, oh, I want more in the office. Mm-hmm. So also there, uh, I take this decentral about quite strong. Uh, they are best to judge what's needed for uh, for their company to be able to create a run. I had one prerequisite, the, the health and the safety of the mm. people. So that's why I, I, I put the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you work, then the one and a half distance, this, that, etc. No external visitors, cleaning. No. Mm. Yeah, we, we, yeah. All, we all yeah. went yeah. through it. But uh, for the rest, the, the entities could decide on their own. Yeah. Yeah, quite quickly, we saw, ooh, the, the, the supply chain constraints could also uh, provide us some opportunities. Yeah. Which, uh, which they did. Yeah, which is at the end of the day is, is then you realize, oh, yeah, yeah, but that, that's our job, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we thrive in, uh, in volatility and, and taking risk. Yeah, huh? Absolutely. I think the better example for Savitra is uh, the Ukrainian situation. Oh, yeah? Think, uh, we used to have an office in the Ukraine, mm-hmm. which we happened to close just uh, a year before the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, we usually had a million tons outstanding, roughly, which we purchased. So we purchased mm-hmm. a lot of grains, which we uh, bring to Europe. Mm-hmm. By chance, we only had 600,000 tons outstanding. And then in, in the run towards the war... No one really believed in the war, but mm. then the risk reward comes. Yeah. I think the risk reward, oh, we could buy a bit in, in Romania for a couple of euros more expensive. Yeah. A trader doesn't want to do that. Because what happens, because of the risk, Ukraine became cheaper and <laughs> Romania <laughs> becomes more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Arbitrage. Oh, down, yeah. and no, the war is not going to happen, yeah. and this and that. And there, uh, I really stepped in. I said, mm. no, yeah, I want a maximum exposure of yeah. X. Yeah. I Frankly, I didn't believe in the war either. Mm. But uh, actually, a colleague of ours calls risk. Risk is chance times impact. Mm-hmm. Now, the impact would have been huge. And yeah. uh, if we would have had a million tons outstanding, it could have yeah. uh, been the end of Savitra. Yeah. Yeah. So then you have to de-risk. Yes. Uh, I think that's there you have to step in. And there, yeah. as a CEO, you look at yeah. that different yeah. because you look at the whole. Yes. Then a trader who trades corn, yeah. I think, oh, I can make an extra million here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go for it. That is, there you have to step in, which is, and if I would be wrong, all the traders would be very angry with me. Eh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The war wouldn't, oh, you lost us million, you cost us yeah. millions. Yeah, then it's your head. Yeah, right, now, so. now I, oh, down there, he saw it well, but I didn't see it well. I just took the needed risk reward decision. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I think everyone would do the same. Yeah. In, in, in that position. Yeah. Great you, can, position. you cannot bet the company. 
correct. That's, you, you, you can better risk position, uh, uh, commodity position, well, but you cannot bet the company. Well, look, th- that is a critical thing. And, and also for our listeners, super interesting that, that you say this, because if you look online, yeah, and, 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 and some books, for example, as well, and some, and some movies, it is about traders who, who want to bet the house and somehow those traders, they always get, get hired again because somehow people fancy the big risk takers. But, you know, I've experienced it in, in Coco several times that companies blew up and, and, and that is called the, the Coco graveyard. And I find it insane that people are so selfish that they actually risk not only the money, but in fact the the exposure that they have to customers that they need to default to and the the, the employees right so you 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 always need to have a situation where i, th- I think it's a perfect example of leadership where you are in the spotlight yep. and take the decision uh, for the survival of the of the company uh, you know i i described it here in in, in my trading style on a, on a was a smaller scale but when i was head of cocoa trading for many years. My style was, uh, the game is to survive, not to shine. And that sounds a little bit defensive, but in cocoa that was necessary given the amount of companies that went bust. Nowadays, currently as as we speak, my discussion with my friends in the cocoa industry is who's gonna fall over in current environment. So I'm quite uh, quite curious. I think it's also a balance of the team, right? So besides the CEO that needs to have that decision that you make, I think you look at risk on a weekly, monthly basis. How often do you look at on something basis, like that? I think. Yeah, Daily. Yeah. <coughs> and then, you know, but if you look at teams where you want to have a defensive, offensive players, mm-hmm. right there, you maybe would like to have more kind of a balanced approach yeah. of kind of types that you want in your in your team. No, absolutely. You need that balance. But I think that what is underestimated that even guys like Paul Tudor Jones, right? I met him a couple of times, very lucky to, to, to be able to interact with him. But he says defense first. Yeah. And, and people always <laughs> think that these guys think in offense. But they always think about, okay, how much can I lose, right? Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah, we, we have both been raised in, in more risk-reward than risk. I think mm-hmm. I, I never... I never say we're risk takers. Mm. I always say we're risk reward takers. Yeah. But that's a little bit the education we yeah. both have, Madine. So yeah. the best traders I met always looked, what if I'm wrong? Yeah. And if then they say, oh, even if I'm wrong, yeah. my, my losses are so so, yeah. then they went big. Yeah. Now I've mentioned uh, I've met also a lot of other traders mm. who kind of only looked what if yeah. it goes right. Yeah. And yeah, they they go for the home runs. I'm 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 not a home run trader. I've never been a home run trader. Yeah. I've been a, a balanced trader. Yeah. That does also mean that there are in in in, in massive bull years. Yeah. yeah, I I I earned less. Yeah. yeah. But my downside was always protected. Yeah. And uh, that that's that's the style. Yeah. Uh, and I'm more comfortable with with, with that style. I yeah. call it the risk yeah. reward style instead of the risk no, on style. But that's a sustainable yeah. style. We, when we mentioned the leadership, and you mentioned already one name. What are the leaders <laughs> that you uh, that you admire? Uh, what are the key things that you have learned from them in your in your long career? Yeah, yeah. We mentioned uh, Paul Hickman already here. That uh, was my boss in uh, in Singapore. Yeah, um, he is a 
Remarkable trade. Mm-hmm. I think the ones I've worked worked close with. He cannot listen to the podcast, otherwise he, gets, he starts shining even more. But um, yeah, he had he had it all. Um, the risk reward, uh, the timing, he, he could turn around at the right time. He, mm-hmm. uh, as, as, as a trader, his, his timing was perfect. And also the way he could explain the market. Yeah. Yeah. I think if someone can explain the market yeah. really well to you, if this happens and yeah, and, yeah Connecting the dots. He, yeah. He, he, he really grasped it. So yeah. Yeah. I, I learned from him a lot on the trading side. Cool. Then my my first boss and the one who hired me, Jos Delors, yeah. um, I really admired him on his on his strategy, his strategic yeah. thinking. He yeah. he really looked forward longer term. Yeah. He has been growing to two businesses uh, from quite yeah. su- substantially, and yeah, as a person, I think yeah. he's one of the most friendly people. You know, yeah. you you also uh, you used to work for me. Yes, absolutely. But I would say strategy is Jos, yeah. trading Paul Hickman, yeah. and then I had Stan Ryan. That was. One of my last bosses in Cargill, and the way he looked at, at talent development was mm-hmm. something uh, I really enjoyed. He, he really stretched talents. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, when it's a talent, uh, you need to stretch the person. Someone who does well in the job, but is in the way of talent development, someone else, mm-hmm. you have to change. Sorry, but the talent first. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took that extremely far, but uh, I took that on board. So the, the, whole, the whole talent development and the way he looked at organizations, I learned from him. Uh, that's that's the, but that's my, old bo- my own bosses, correct? My, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my own experience. Now, we have a lot of uh, <laughs> young listeners. <laughs> we, have a lot, we have a lot of young listeners. Yeah. They want to know, you know, how do I break into the commodity industry? Uh, so they want to know, what is it that that we look at? What, what is it that you look at? That's one thing. And do you get involved still in hiring graduates at times or, or juniors? And what, what, are, what are the things you, you really find important? Yeah, you have to have a certain level of conceptual thinking. So yeah. um, in our process, we have a case. You have to make the case. Yeah. You cannot get hired. Mm. By making the case well, mm-hmm. but you can yeah, not yeah. be hired yeah, yeah, by yeah. not making the case okay. well. So kind yeah. of that is, you need to have a minimum conceptual yeah. uh, capability. Yeah. Then, yeah, I think it's the usual suspect type of uh, things we look at. Uh, I always courage and conviction. So you need to have to, the courage to, to think your own way, to make your own plan, to go against others' opinions, mm-hmm. all that. But you also have the conviction, mm-hmm. and the conviction comes in to tell yourself, oh, I'm wrong. And so I always say, courage, because with, with, with only courage, you probably go to this full risk on type and you believe yeah. in your own story. Oh, you need to have the conviction, especially to yourself. Oh, I'm not right. Exit. Yeah. Uh, with that comes, uh, yeah, you need to be able to fail. Yeah. And that's maybe sometimes underestimated. So a very good trader is, you know, the better matin, six, seven out of ten, of ten times right. Yeah. But when you're wrong, it's a very lonely place. Yeah. Uh, you cannot blame anyone. You try, yeah. but you cannot blame anyone. No. It's you. Yeah. Uh, and you just failed. Yeah. Uh, and that's a very lonely place to be, which you need to be uh, able to deal with. So yeah. in that process, uh, if you are too much a perfectionist, usually you, uh, you, you're you not a trader, which is not uh, you, you You're probably better in, in, in another area. And mm-hmm. ah. I was like, find that funny to say, but when, when someone made the case really well, then uh, I sometimes test, okay, then I, I tell the person, yeah, you didn't do the case really well, eh? 
then you can test a lot. So I saw him, oh, they're really upset. Oh, can it be? Can it be? I did really. No, not a trader. Yeah. And then people say, oh, it's all well. It's all good. Huh? Okay. So that is that is where you can Different test reactions. a little bit the uh, conviction. Yeah. But yeah, the perfe- perfectionism and trading, it sounds a bit strange because you need to yeah. read a lot and say a lot, but you always make a decision based on partial information. So no perfectionism. I, I find huh? this... Critically important, and I'm I'm happy that you say this. Yeah. I say it often as well to very smart people that mm. I interview, and I see resumes that I'm thinking, look, I'm a, I'm a nobody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm a hollow, old school <laughs> economics student. Yeah. If you see what nowadays they do, right? But I need to explain to them that the job of trading is not some kind of scientific perfection you will always na- need to trust your judgment based on 60% of what you want to have and be decisive. You have a lot of naughty professors who can't deal with that because they seek perfection, which will never happen oh. in trading, right? No, no, but no you I agree. I see it also with, <laughs> with Vesper where we supply information to traders, to buyers, to sellers, but they... The, it, you know, we have part of it, but th- to make it 360 degrees, you don't have all the information to mm. make your call. If you're yeah, going to yeah. take a position long or short, you know, maybe you cannot call all your clients. You didn't speak to all your suppliers. You d- you know, you mm-hmm. don't know how much is stock levels is exactly how much is on the boat. How much? So you have, you know, you have with your team, you can gather a lot of information. You can have the Vespers, the Bloomberg terminals, etc. But still, there is like this this area where it's it's blind. You basically no. you have to make a call still with your team on some yeah not 100% information. If you feel comfortable with that yeah. as well, I think. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think we we are we we are quite uh, on the same page yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah that's a, we agree. Yeah. Perfectionism yeah. is uh, is is a good yeah. characteristic or capability, but. Maybe not for a commodity. No, but on the other hand, and, and therefore you said it may sound strange, is that you do need people who need to do the nitty-gritty work, the S&D, the S&D stuff, and who, de- who need to do the homework. And if I, and that's another thing where I sometimes su- surprised about when doing an interview, because when you do graduates or people who have worked for one year, you still need to look for signals that they are able to trade and that like you said, that they need to be able to make an analysis, yeah? So what I often ask them is, look, do you have uh, some exposure to the market? It it can be 5,000 euros or 1,000 euros. It can be a small equity exposure. It can be crypto, yeah? And what what I've noticed, and and again, these rocket scientists, when I ask, okay, so how did you make your decision? And what what kind of valuation metric or how do you look at risk? It's quite interesting to see how shallow often these answers are. I, f- I, find, that, I find that amazing. Yeah. While there are also people who actually really impress me with the depth of their analysis. That is, that is what I like. Oh. Yeah, because that is the type of behavior that you can then expect on a trading desk as well. Uh, you need uh, some some sort of carpet trading sentiment traders, but what I really like to see in people 
that they have really done the the homework. Uh, yeah, you need to have the drive to go yes. for the last set. And that's why yeah. it might be misleading perfectionism. But I think if you link perfectionism and failing, so perfectionist usually fails less than uh, someone who's not a perfectionist. I, I always connect the two. So why not a perfectionist? Yeah, one, you cannot know everything. Yeah. Uh, but second, uh, the, the failing element. Yeah. And especially the last one, yeah, a perfectionist usually is a perfectionist because yeah. he or she doesn't like, I think, those two dots are. Right. A nice thing that I think about now yeah. is that uh, <laughs> you, uh, you 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 said you were supportive, more supportive um, when a trader was losing money, and we all know indeed that you know, on the trading floor, everyone knows. Okay, that desk, they are not in good shape. Yeah, yeah, true. And then yeah. you see someone from the higher echelon walking around that desk, asking some some questions. But the thing is. I had a situation once where I was in a shit trade for some time. <laughs> and then my, my boss at the time, Philippe Wett, he said, uh, Martijn, don't worry about it. It's not your money. Yeah. It's, the fa- it's the family's money. And although, you know, I've always behaved like an owner, and, and you know in Cargill, you do feel like owner, yeah. the family. Yeah? You, oh. you do feel like, yeah, it is a family-owned business and, uh, well... You, you behave, the strength of, of Cargill is that most people behave like an owner. Yep. No. But the fact that... Most he, commodity traders yeah, do. With yeah. Own, yeah. Their own book is their book. Yeah, yeah, correct. Exactly. Uh, they own it. You so. feel it. But the thing is that yeah. he said that to me was a great relief at the time. Because I didn't feel uh, the stress on my shoulders anymore that my boss said, look, Martijn, it's okay. don't yeah. worry about it. It's okay. Yeah. And that, and, and that uh, I think... You know, helped me greatly to to be relaxed and less stressed. No, yeah, less, <laughs> yeah. less, but less, you, less you stressful. But do you make decisions maybe also when you're relaxed, right? Because yeah. let let the boss in that case feel the pressure, right? Let him feel the pressure yeah. so that you, as a younger guy, can really learn and develop. Yeah. And and you know, should you already in, at that stage when you're younger than how you at that stage already feel that pressure, right? Maybe your manager should maybe feel it a bit more. I think we all remember our bad trades better yeah. than our good trades. So it yeah. tells you already what the yeah. impact is and how important it is that you uh, are supported. Did you yeah. have some uh, bad or good trades that you can uh, recall or the, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some, many, some good many, anecdotes? Many. Yeah. The, uh, the best anecdote <laughs> uh, we always share is uh, so I was in the bottleneck and uh, the big boss was Jos Delors and then we had Emile van Dijk, who's now the head of Cocoa and Chocolate of Cargill was the, the trading head. He went on holiday mm-hmm. for two weeks. And then we had to promise that we didn't, didn't do anything big. So uh, mm-hmm. Andrew Perkins from the yeah. UK was just in our office uh, a year or so. I was there for uh, one and a half years. So we did our supply and demand analysis. Yeah. <laughs> we only uh, do it. <laughs> this market is going down. <laughs> so we sold uh, Palmolin. PKP at uh, 6.35 US dollars, just the day after Emil uh, left for holiday. Mm-hmm. No no phones yet in those days, so he mm-hmm. came back. And of course, we discussed that with Jos, who mm-hmm. uh, was also bearish. We, I'm, I'm a bear trader, by the way. I'm more a bear than a bull trader. Mm-hmm. So usually my mistakes are to the bear side. <laughs> uh, and Emil came back and uh, it was trading uh, 7.25. Wow. So we were standing with the three of us, yeah. uh, head down. Sorry, Emil, sorry. <laughs> it was not my biggest loss, but the one we remember... Uh, the best, yeah. 
just in yeah, yeah but that's yeah, how that's, that's uh, how you do especially right? above the circumstances and how was his reaction yeah <laughs> uh, uh, if you know Emil Emil's always uh, moderate in his uh, reaction so it's okay it's fun it's fun of, it's one of my best friends so we are okay, <laughs> we are okay. yeah that, that was the uh, one that uh, what did you do with it up. what huh? did you do we did you sweat it we, out we, yeah of course yeah as a real bad trader you you hang in yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it, no, it was uh, way too early way you, too early. you didn't close it the same evening no no we, we stayed in and at the end it corrected but, uh, yeah right. uh, when you're too early it's also not good right. so it was mm. not it was, it, it was not a good trade because yeah. we could have made 100 bucks more Mm. We would have stepped in later, uh, but this is just a funny example. Yeah, mm. and a good one. Yeah, the the one I enjoyed uh, when I was young the most is uh, a huge carry trade in in coconut oil. So mm. the coconut oil was trading back then uh, at 190 dollars FOB Philippines, which is uh, we mar- it's now uh, I think 1400 or something. Mm. But it was hi- historic low, but the market was in a huge carry. So you have double shipment months in uh, in coconut oil, and those were 10 to 15 dollars carry per month. Mm-hmm. So we we bought all the stocks, we yeah. s- we sold forward, yeah. and we shipped it from South Philippines to North Philippines, Bataan, and I stored 150,000 tons, which was in those days a lot of coconut oil, mm-hmm. uh, in a, actually a mineral oil uh, terminal which we cleaned. Oh, uh, but it was not tenable anymore, so you okay. could not sell it. We yeah. took the risk. Yeah. I can sell it for yeah. non non-food yeah. usage. Yeah. Uh, coconut oil is also big in the oil the oil chemicals, yeah. of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we shipped it there. I think the shipping was twenty dollars. So we already made made ten dollars yeah. by, by putting it yeah. there. Yeah. Total carry cost was one and a half dollars a month. Mm-hmm. So I made eight and a half. Yeah. Financing in those days was not a real item in yeah. Cargill. Plus, yeah, it was it was cheap. So yeah, but j- by just sitting there, it was uh, a couple of million a month. Yeah, and, 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 uh, what I like about it, you use yeah. your physical edge yeah, yeah. around the trade. So uh, my, my example would always be a real physical trade yeah. where you use the supply chain expertise yeah. to make money. Because, yeah, that that's, I think, a uh, very nice expertise to be in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great. D- did you like the financial side of the of the fiscal trade as well? Oh. I'm not sure if I really get the, the hedging, right? The, so the oh, hedging, the, the hedging. futures, etc., yeah, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to, yeah, to sure. complement your, you know, your fiscal side. Uh, okay, now I understand. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, the future trading is quite sexy, but my heart is more. I like the physical products more because you, you get only one or two chances. So I, I believe uh, I put young talents mm. always on the physical trade yeah. first. And not on the futures. Mm-hmm. Uh, more reasons to that, but I think the physical. It really is this 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 feeling, this finger speeding feel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You learn the best in the physical trade. Yeah. Uh, plus, usually there are the smaller products, so yeah. you can put a young trader as a number one. That's your product. Yeah. Usually, yeah. the future traded products. You are the number two or number three. Don't do that because you you know as a number two or three, the number one is is, is looking, uh, is watching you. Yeah. So I always say your talents put them not on the on the big products. Mm-hmm. No, put them first on the small products and let them yeah. feel how it is. Yeah. This is my position. It's yeah. me. So yeah. ASAP own product. Yeah. That's that's uh, that's a good advice. Uh, that's a good that's thing. And you learn the, the the contract specifications as well. Yeah. You become aware of uh, logistical constraints. Uh, I <coughs> I traded at some stage uh, sunflower meal. Yeah. 
uh, which came out of the factory and there was hardly any storage, right? So at four o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, I needed to call Arkady. <laughs> please. Please uh, come with the coaster. And Sanmio was, was not that important, of course, but you, you get used you to, to move it, yeah. the critical things in, in physical uh, commodity tradings. Huh? Yeah. And uh, yeah, and and the contract, which is the basis of, of disputes, right? Which you want to prevent. But when there is a dispute, you want to be able to know what what are your obligations and and your rights. Yeah. And yeah, you'll notice that less when you trade out of futures, of course. Yeah. Hey, one other thing which I find very interesting. And I'm curious how how Savetra looks at that. So nowadays, you see in the markets players like Citadel, who trade basically any asset class, and they have they have access to capital. Citadel is one of the, the most, if not the at the moment, successful hedge funds in the, in, the, in the world. They have access to computing power, they have access to the, all the best talent in the world, and and they, they, they impact markets. Now, how, how, do, how does Cervetra look at that? Do you notice the impact of those players who are not necessarily fundamental traders like yourself mm-hmm. have an impact on the market. And for example, do you have a way to build a data science function, which, you know, maybe not like Citadel, but, but at least tries to get a better feel on, yeah. on, on the impact of, of those traders on, 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 on your markets? Yes, uh, of course we have to. I think uh, even if we if we would not like to speculate, uh, we're now doing 60 million tons uh, of physical goods. Uh, just to hatch that or to run that supply chain, it's not all back to back. So just yeah. uh, only for that, you need to have top market intelligence. Where do I put my hedge? Uh, how do I do my time spreads? Uh, product for cash, product for cash, the, the, the whole shimoni. Um, I was uh, positively surprised when I joined uh, Savitra, coming from a, a multinational with, 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 with companies uh, across the world and across the world, how good that market research team was. Young, but quite good. Uh, one, uh, good people, but also I think because they looked at the world more as one, where the bigger companies, they add up all the individual data they might have been able to be a bit quicker in in separating the real important things for uh, trends from the less important trends. So, but that starts with good people. I had, I had the luxury that we have quite some good people there. Then in 2016, um, we had a quite a difficult year, and one of the positions was uh, you used to hedge uh, a premium long with a long and a premium short with with yeah. a short. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah especially in, uh, in, uh, in markets where you have a delivery mechanism. Mm-hmm. So one thing, I mean, South American soya meal, you cannot tender on the US, so you, 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 uh, you should wonder what the correlation is, but still everyone traded, uh, yeah. traded it like that. Yeah. And second, because of the involvement of these hedge funds or, or the funds, yeah. we, we noticed that the correlation became very unpredictable, yeah. i.e. we did an analysis, there was no, there's no correlation. Yeah. So a premium position is as risky as an outright flat or short. Or short. Uh, I'm very blunt on that. Uh, people don't always see it like that. But I'm, I mean, and, and history has shown it, I think, and the data proved that. Also, I think a misunderstanding is markets are not more volatile because of the involvement of, of hedge funds. Uh, you have higher peaks and higher lows. 
but a lot more volatile. That's sort of something which is people mixing mixing that up. Uh, they are so, but because of these higher peaks and higher lows, mm. the, the price discovery, and now I come to the word that uh, I use here a lot, the price discovery has become more difficult. Yeah. So when, you know, when, when I started, I, I gave an example, when I was too early, you could usually sit it out yeah. when you were right. Yeah. If you're early today, yeah. with these huge spikes up and down, you're stopped out. Yeah. So the timing of a that today is more difficult than 25, 25 yeah. years ago. So that does mean we work more with options. Uh, we jump more on the trend than before the trend. It's a, it's a yeah. different way of trading than we used to do. And uh, that's how we try to deal with it. Next to that, we have reached out uh, We have reached out to these kind of hedge funds. So we actually exchange ideas, let's, let's say it like that with them. Uh, by that, they get some information from us. And we start to understand their positioning better. And of course, we know the position of the hedge fund and the speculative yeah. money, but especially the personal contact is, is a step we took 2016 onwards. And yeah. you know, we are kind of connected to almost all of them, all the major ones. So and that helps. Did that uh, explain no, a lot? Yeah, it has been a big thing. In no, I, th I, th I think it's very good that you say it again. And I recognize it as well. You have uh, runaway markets. Uh, liquidity voids, yeah. uh, sometimes indeed caused by, by, by options, you have gamma squeezes, and you have no correlation between, between the derivatives and the, and the underlying anymore. And then you run uh, a big Texas hedge. Yeah, it happened a lot. <laughs> uh, can we, are there specific, look, that can happen, can it happen in any commodity market or do you need specific variables or specific factors in a market where you have, maybe it's a, Small supply side, big demand side, or or where there's liquidity, there's no or or less liquidity on the on the future market, or could any market be uh, open I, to I, this? Well, I think I think what Dan said is, is is as I see it as well. You have you have more market extremes, so you can have a market that remains irrational longer than than before. Also, because these excessive moves, they they suck liquidity. People get scared, yeah. yeah. And that is also what what I've seen, for example, when in in Coco in 2019 the living income differential was introduced. Exactly what Dan said, the correlation between the underlying and futures was broken due to an artificial impact from a government. Yeah. Yeah. Liquidity tanked dramatically in future market. Yes. Yeah. Because people didn't want to participate anymore because they knew the cash convergence was broken. So what you say, price discovery, it didn't work anymore. No. And if it doesn't work anymore, people say, well, I'm not gonna I, I'm not able to hedge my physical business on the forward. So there was no liquidity from hedges neither anymore. No. So markets became more like a spot market. No. But this is something, and this, this is no. also one of the things that I would like to use in this podcast uh -huh. to explain it. Now, I told you, at this very moment here in Amsterdam, and there is a World Cocoa Foundation uh, week, yep. the cocoa market at the moment is up in flames. Now, it has to do with the historic uh, crop scare, bad weather, but also years of, say, aging trees, aging farmers, and all these things. But an important thing in my mind is, and, and uh, that is uh, the elephant in the room, is lack of understanding 
of how the futures market works. Functions or, or not functions. In or this not case. functions. Yeah. And yeah. the importance of the futures market for the price discovery, mm. it's critical. Yeah, no, but you, you explained <laughs> it uh, perfectly. And it can be disrupted by interference yeah. by governments, but also by by hedge funds yeah. who come in uh, as a bull in the China shop. But maybe and, that can happen yeah. faster at an, in a cocoa market mm -hmm. due to certain elements than maybe a grain market, right? I yeah. don't know, because maybe it has much higher liquidity. I'm not, I'm not sure, but... Yeah, but I mean, we uh, we trade soya, we trade wheat, we trade corn, yeah. and I mean, yeah. every trading meeting is about the position of the spec funds. Yeah, and then you have the the institutional spec and the short-term spec. Yeah, uh, and and yeah, you know when they turn around, uh, when they when they have a big position, yeah, uh, they they can keep adding, 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 but when they turn around. Yeah, it can be explosive. Yeah. So you you have to uh, keep yeah. it in mind, and yeah. and um, it goes so quick. Yeah. yeah. So it's not that you, it happens in a day and then a no. bit. No, it's limit up, limit up, limit up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're too late yeah. by default. So you need to find a way of uh, uh, of managing that, which uh, it's a, just a new element which yeah. you have to deal with. Uh, yeah. It also gives opportunities. And so yeah. uh, it's, it's not it's, it's, not, all right uh, it's not all bad. It's not all bad. But uh, <laughs> awesome. the price is covering. Yeah. The most important thing is you don't see it as a hedge yeah. per se. I yeah. mean, there are, there, there yeah. are moments that it is a hedge. Yeah. Yeah. Usually, the longer out you go, eh, longer term, the correlation is better than short term. Yes, yes. But yeah, I'd rather work with options. I, I often say you uh, you can better hedge your, your outright longer mm -hmm. short with uh, with an option protection. Mm -hmm. Then, 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 then put all these future hedge and where do you put the hedge and which month yeah. and then you need to start rolling your hedge and uh, plus the whole day the trade is busy with that yeah. and not with selling or buying or or, or or new business development. So you you have it. It's part of a functional role to have this position. Invest in an option construction and but don't fool yourself in in this continuous future uh, hedges. Looking at um, the time, is there maybe uh, one thing we still want to know, Dan? A lot of the listeners, they, they will hear that you're very enthusiastic about, about the <laughs> business. Yeah, and that's also, you know, the go that, that all of us are enthusiastic. Yeah. Love it. And, we, yeah. we, like, we, huh, and we, we like to wake up people who are also not thinking about commodity trading. And we want to support those who are considering it. And what is what is your advice when people kind of dabbling whether they should uh, go to, for example, um, investment banking or commodity trading? Uh, and if you want to tell them why, why commodity trading, and then what should they do in order to land a, a job as a commodity trader in a tier one uh, company? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, first of all, yeah, they, they have a huge passion for the commodity world. I mean... I feel blessed that I started. In the, well, it's, it's not that I had a huge idea. I'm going to go to commodity trading and my whole life, I have to be honest around it. But from day one, it has been fitting as a glove. Now, mm -hmm. What do I like so much around it? Maybe I start from myself and then I mm -hmm. zoom in on the, yeah. what, what others can do. It's, it's, uh, it's honest. Yeah? Um, it's quick. So you know rather fast if you did well or not well. Yeah. So when you're a bit impatient... 
And, quick uh, results. Quick results, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's measurable. Yeah. It's a very tangible result. Correct. It's not... It's not subjective. It's very yeah. objective. We did yeah. well or not well. Yeah. So that's what I meant with honest. It's a yeah. very honest job. Uh, quick results. So uh, dynamic, global, geopolitical. Yes, yes, yes. But I think those two are quite mm. specific. And maybe most important, the people. Mm. So you, the people in such an industry, people, you have to think about the world glass half full. Yeah, yeah. Although, yes, risk-reward, and I look at the downside, but you need to yeah. think in opportunity, yeah. opportunities. So the people are opportunity-driven. Yeah. So generally, that are nice people. You also trade with each other. So yes, there's a lot of competition, but competitors also need each other in the physical sure. supply chains. And that gives a certain uh, dynamic. Um, I'm, I'm talking especially about the agri Commodities, because that's the one I, I know best. It's a dynamic that, um, yeah, it's a very nice industry yeah. to work in. Yeah, yeah? Um, yeah and uh, the passion is clear. Then, yeah, if you're, if you're interested, of course, you should follow the elective of uh, the Rotterdam uh, Management School. Is, uh, it believes the, the RSM on the lead yeah. of Wouter Jacobs, who has a very nice elective on uh, commodities and, and supply chains. It's the only one I know in Holland. I think in Switzerland they there is also one have in Geneva. one. Yeah. Uh, then you can really study um, and reach out to people. Yeah. I think almost every commodity trader, if you reach out to such a person, yeah. wants to talk about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah? We love it. We yeah, are passionate. Yeah. Um, I haven't mentioned it, but commodity trading is 24-7. Mm-hmm. It's always in your head. Yeah. So you need to have a passion. <laughs> passion yeah, for yeah. It. yeah. Nice holidays, but you yeah. see something on the news, you yeah. see shit. <laughs> High water. <laughs> Oh, what was the position again? Oh, I want it, low water, all my barges, oh, which is very nice, but mm-hmm. it's 24-7. You yeah. need to be addicted Red sea yeah. now, a little you know, bit to it's, it. It's, uh, it's so active. Yeah. So that means passion, big, yeah. but uh, they love to explain about yeah. it. So just reach out. Yeah. Um, everyone is welcome to send me an email or, or LinkedIn. Uh, I always make time for people to uh, invite them and uh, <laughs> show cool. our business That's and see if, if it fits them. Amazing. Okay, great. Um, well, then we come uh, to the end of our uh, fourth podcast now. Um, so, Dan, it was amazing having you here. I, I wrote something that I learned from you uh, that I think we should uh, also mention uh, later on. But I think it was amazing uh, to have you here. Amazing podcast. Uh, loved your answers. Honest. And I, I love what you say, the mix of Brabant, uh, a bit of Rotterdam. <laughs> I think that, that helps you also with uh, with your business. I think it's true. So perhaps uh, you do some carnivals and skiing, what the Dutch people do uh, in the south part of the Netherlands uh, at this uh, time. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for being here. And um, we will f- keep on following you. Thank uh, you. It was a great pleasure being here. Yeah. And I also want to thank you. And, and you know, I, w- I always say to people about you, that you're very accessible, right? Such a respected guy with such an impressive career, but you're very accessible, very nice guy, lots of insights, and both credible on the trading side and on the business leadership side. And I I find that very interesting for our audience. So thanks for your insights. Appreciate it. Thanks for that.